morning, and our sermon is entitled, God's Electing Purpose. We're continuing to walk verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Romans in our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed. We've come to chapter 9. We're going to be focusing on verses 10 through 13 this morning, but I want to start reading at verse 6. The text says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it and let us heed it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You ever heard the, the saying, the past is prologue? For Paul, the past was certainly prologue. That means that what God had done in the earliest generations of His covenant people served really as, a, as a, useful, a useful pattern for the way in which God was presently working. In order to prove that the present unbelief by the majority of ethnically Jewish people, that it didn't imply that God's Word had somehow failed, he first argued that this was because, was because not all of those who descended from Israel truly belonged to Israel. And in order to prove this suggestion, he went all the way back to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. There, Paul sought to demonstrate that Abraham, had, though he had multiple children, he had some who were designated as children of the flesh while others were children of promise. For example, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. He was the son that Abraham fathered through the Egyptian bondservant Hagar. When Abraham was about 86 years old, he remained childless and was without an heir, and his wife Sarah offered to him her handmaiden in order that he might have a child through her. That was Ishmael. He was a child of the flesh, the fruit of human scheming and effort, the result of the natural procreative processes. He would not be heir and the covenant would not be fulfilled through Ishmael's line. Instead, God promised that Sarah would bear Abraham a son. And 13 years later, when Abraham was almost 100 years old, and Sarah was almost 90, Sarah conceived and gave birth to Isaac, 
He is a child of promise. And through his line would the heirs of God's covenant be established. Though, like Ishmael, Isaac was descended from Abraham physically. Unlike Ishmael, Isaac was not the result of human initiative. Instead, Isaac was born from above, the fruit of divine intervention. He was the promised one. God worked a miracle in the worn out and barren womb of Sarah. He created life from the deadness and bore a son from the barrenness. Indeed, as the scripture says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Ishmael's birth was merely natural. Isaac's birth was supernatural. Isaac was the recipient of God's promise. He was a gift of God's grace. And in today's passage, Paul is going to continue to show this distinction being made among the descendants of Abraham, where some are children of the flesh, while others are children of promise. Paul's argument is that this distinction originates in the will of and the determination of God Himself. That it is God who determines who will be the children of the flesh and who will be children of promise. As the Creator of all things, God has the right and God has the authority to decide what He will do with His creation. It is this absolute authority over every maverick molecule of the universe that we call God's sovereignty. That He does whatsoever He pleases and none can stop His hand or thwart Him or call Him into account. It is through God's sovereign freedom then that the children of promise are chosen for redemption. And it is through His sovereign power that those chosen are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And these truths are often called, as they are in our passage, the doctrine of election. And in order to provide a further example of God's sovereign election, Paul then will now turn to the second generation from Abraham, of Abraham's descendants. Here we see that God makes a distinction between Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. From their story, we can learn a lot about God's electing purpose. And we can see more clearly why it is that not all who are descended from Israel are in fact Israel. It is because not all who are descended from Israel are of the elect. From this passage then, Derived from the biblical example of Jacob and Esau, I would like to draw forth five truths about God's sovereign election. Five truths about God's sovereign election. The first of which is this. God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau was unambiguous. God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau was unambiguous. If Paul had stopped after giving just the first example of election with Ishmael and Isaac, 
then we might have been left with some misconceptions about what exactly Paul was trying to communicate to us. Think about it for, for a moment. If he wants to show that not all who are descended from Abraham are counted as offspring of Abraham, he must do more than simply give the examples of Ishmael and Isaac. For if he stopped after listing just that first generation, then we might conclude, okay, the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael's line are not truly Israel. We knew that. We then will conclude it is then through Isaac's line that true Israel is made up. But that's not only the case. Paul wants to show that God's choice of some of Abraham's offspring to be children of the flesh and some to be children of the promise didn't begin and end with that first generation. It continued to the next. In fact, his point is that this distinction continues to be worked out among the physical and spiritual descendants of, Abraham, of Israel in every generation up till the present day. In the first example, Paul tells of two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. We've already stated that Ishmael was a child of Abraham after the flesh, while Isaac was a child of Abraham through promise. But there are elements of that story that hide the true glory of God's electing purpose. And it's possible that we hear that story and then draw the wrong conclusions. Because as you know, Ishmael and Isaac both had Abraham as a father, but they had different mothers, didn't they? Isaac was born to Abraham's first wife, Sarah, while Ishmael was born to Hagar, the Egyptian. Moreover, Isaac's mother Sarah was a free woman, while Hagar was a slave woman. And so we might conclude that God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael has to do with the boy's respective mothers. Maybe God chose Isaac simply because he was Sarah's son. Or maybe God rejected Ishmael because he was born to a slave woman and not a free woman. For, furthermore, we know that it was predicted that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. Maybe it's the case that God chose to reject Ishmael because of the way that he would turn out as this wild man. Maybe he chose Isaac on the, based on the fact that he would be more righteous than Ishmael. Well, in order to clear up any of these misconceptions and to make sovereign election of God less ambiguous, Paul gives a second example from Isaac's sons. Notice how Paul transitions between the two stories to show that he is continuing the same line of thought. In verse 10 he says, And not only so. And then he gives a second example saying, Also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So the story of Rebekah's conception through Isaac is told in Genesis chapter 25. That's where the story comes from. That's what Paul is referring to here. Let me read Genesis 25, 19 through 28, so that we can be reminded of some of the details 
of their births. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, that Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled with together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here again, just as before, we have two rival sons, this time Esau and Jacob. And, but this time the boys have the same father, and they have the same mother. Like Sarah, Rebekah also was barren before the Lord opened her womb and gave her children. And not only were these boys from the same father and the same mother, but they were born at the same time, growing up together in the same womb. They were, in fact, twins. Yet Jacob was a child of promise, while Esau was a child of flesh. Why? Do you see that the possible explanations that we had with Isaac and Ishmael were no, we no longer have with Jacob and Esau? It's not because the boys have different mothers or different statuses. Why then? Why is one a child of promise and the other a child of flesh? The answer, which has become unambiguously clear is found in God and not in the boys themselves. God's promise and God's call is the determining factor. It is God's prerogative to have mercy on whom He shall have mercy. Secondly, God's sovereign election of Jacob over Israel is not only unambiguous, but it is unmerited. It is unmerited. In verse 11, Paul makes clear that Rebekah was told that the older son would serve the younger before they were born, yet born or had done anything, whether good or bad. So earlier we suggested that God might have chosen Isaac because he was a more godly man while Ishmael was a wild child. But do you see that that notion is taken away with Jacob and with Esau? 
God's basis for loving Jacob and hating Esau was not in the inherent goodness or badness of either one of them. In fact, Rebekah was informed of God's choice before their birth, while the two boys were still in the womb. It couldn't have been on the basis of good works, religious devotion, or righteous behavior of the one over the other. Neither could it be the depravity and immorality of the other that caused God to choose the opposite. By the way, do we need reminding what kind of person Jacob was exactly? He stole from his brother and he lied to his father. His name means he cheats. And that's exactly what he did to his brother. He cheated him out of his birthright and his blessing. In Genesis 27, verses 35 through 36, Esau said, I mean, Isaac said to Esau, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob was not a godly man, at least not in his younger years. It was only later that Jacob came to truly know the Lord. Thirdly, I want you to see that God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau was not only unambiguous and unmerited, but it was ultimate. The reason that God told Rebekah that the older son Esau was going to serve the younger son Jacob before they were yet born or had done anything, whether good or bad, was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So ultimately then, God's purpose of election was at work distinguishing between Ishmael and Isaac. God's purpose of election is also on display in the choice of Jacob over Esau. But this electing purpose not only exists in the lives of these two pairs of brothers, but it continues to distinguish between the children of promise and the children of flesh. Paul saw this principle at work in his own day, distinguishing between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. And this principle is just as clearly at work in our own day. Paul told those believers in Thessalonica who had received the gospel and witnessed its power through the Holy Spirit that in verse chapter 1, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Jesus likewise told believers in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14 that many are called but that few are chosen. Likewise to the Ephesian Christians, Paul wrote, The Father chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So God then has a purpose in His election of some rather than others. The basis of that choice is not anything found in those individuals. 
It's not because of whose parents they are. It's not because they are made of some superior stock than others. They're not chosen for their height or for their righteousness or their ethnicity or for their intelligence or their social status, how much money they have, where they come from. None of that means anything in God's choice. But just because God did not choose them based upon anything in them, it doesn't mean that God's choice of them is arbitrary or capricious in some way. God's choice does have a purpose. Election is purposeful. It is simply that this purpose lies not with individual, but within God Himself. As Ephesians 1.11 states, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It is His will and His counsel and His purpose that is what matters. And in our text in verse 11, we're told that this purpose of election is not by works. By denying that God chooses us on the basis of good works or any foreseen faith on our part, we are extolling then that salvation is merely and solely by the grace of God and God's grace alone. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by work so that no man may boast. That God saved us and called us to a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If salvation is by grace and it is not according to works, then it is God who saves and not we ourselves. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So then God's election is not because of works, but because of Him who calls. The deciding factor between Ishmael and Isaac, the deciding factor between Jacob and Esau, and the deciding factor between all the children of the flesh and all the children of the promise is located not in them or their work, but in Him who calls. Election is not based on anything found in the worker, but is based upon what is found in the caller. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, Abraham was given the promise that he would be the father of many nations in the presence of God. And it says, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So then the calling mentioned here is what we often refer to as the effectual call of God. It is the kind of call that goes out into the darkness and demands let there be light and then light which previously didn't exist suddenly pops into existence and obeys the command of God. This is the kind of call that Jesus used to summon His four-day-old dead friend Lazarus from the tomb. Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come forth. 
And though Lazarus had no ability within himself to come forth because he was dead, he came forth draped in burial clothes and all. This is what the that Paul himself was called to this is the way that Paul himself was called to be an apostle, as he mentions in Romans 1. It's the same way that the Roman Christians in chapter 1, verse 6, are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's the same way in chapter 1, verse 7, that they're called to be saints. Paul had already, back in chapter 8, talked about the importance of calling in this assurance, in this golden chain of salvation there in verses 28 through 30. He says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So I hope then that you can see that the emphasis is not on the one who is called as much as it is on the one who is calling. He is the one with the power and the authority. His will is the ultimate one. He decides which unworthy sinners that He is going to rescue and He redeems them through faith in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, I want you to see that God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau was not only unambiguous and unmerited and ultimate, but it was unexpected. It was unexpected. If we go back to the story of Esau and Jacob, we see that they're great examples of God's sovereign grace because all of their factors of their birth are equal. They had the same father, they had the same mother, they shared the same womb. There was only one thing different about Esau that was different from Jacob, and that is that Esau came out first. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob came out grasping a hold of his brother's heel. This position of holding his brother's heel makes it appear that even in the womb, Jacob was attempting to supplant his brother and take his place as the firstborn inheritor. This is the source, after all, of the name Jacob. And in the ancient world, the preeminence of the firstborn was an important principle that governed family structures. By worldly standards, then, Esau ought to have been favored over Jacob since Esau was born first. But God's sovereign election does not work according to worldly standards. And for that reason, Rebekah was told the older will in fact serve the younger. God chose Jacob over Esau and not the other way around. God's electing of Jacob over Esau was unexpected according to the ways of the world. We see this also in the way that the boys grew up, don't we? It is Esau that is the man's man. He's the John Wayne of the story. He's a skillful hunter, a man of the land. He can cook excellent meat. This is the guy that, uh, that many people would honor and is attractive in the world's eye. Jacob, however, was indoorsy. He was smooth-skinned. He's a mama's boy. 
It was Esau and not Jacob that possessed those attributes generally favored by the world. But you see, God has a way of working not with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but through common, ordinary fishermen and tax collectors. He works in ways that we are unexpected to us. And in a similar way, Paul calls upon us to evaluate our calling as well. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It doesn't say not any. It says not many, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, God doesn't show any kind of worldly partiality. He doesn't typically choose the rich or the most noble or the ablest or the smartest. But just as James reminded us, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Paul saw that this same principle at play in his own conversion. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, I received mercy because... I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he said, I received mercy for this reason, that as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Listen, I I understand that this doctrine can draw forth some strong emotions from people about even the nature of God and about the nature of salvation. But the doctrine of election ought to give us hope. God is far more merciful and compassionate than we ever could be. Paul saw his conversion as a testimony of the amazing nature of God's grace. His reception of mercy from God ought to encourage us that we too can be saved. If I can be saved, then you can be saved, then anyone can be saved, right? Listen, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, then there is plenty of hope for you. The response to the doctrine of election should never be for you to look at your present situation and then conclude that because you are not saved now that God must not have chosen you. You don't know that. To you, God is holding out His arms and saying, how often I would have gathered you into my arms and into my fold, but you would not. It is precisely the way that God works to save the unlikely person, the wee little tax collector that everyone despises who climbs a sycamore tree so he can see Jesus, the known sinner who washes the Savior's feet with her hair, the Samaritan woman at the well who's had a half dozen husbands, 
the demon-possessed homeless man who cuts himself and lives out among the tombs, the dying criminal who's being executed directly beside the Lord Jesus and had previously joined in with the mocking of the Lord. These are all children of promise. They probably didn't think that God could ever love someone like them either. It's just in the very next chapter after this that Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. He goes on to say that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that promise is a promise from God for you this morning. If you call upon the name of the Lord this morning, then you will be saved. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then the response to the doctrine of election is not to think, I was chosen by God when others weren't. That is what the Bible means by boasting. If we think that way, then we have missed the point entirely. There is no greater oxymoron than the arrogant Calvinist. And yet too often that's what we find. These doctrines ought to humble us to our core. Instead, we ought to be amazed at the rich mercy of God and ask, how could God have chosen such a one as me? That's amazing grace. Lastly, I want you to see that God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau was undeniable. Undeniable. As a final testimony to the doctrine of God's sovereign election of Jacob, Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So notice that this doesn't come from Genesis 25. It comes from much later. It comes from Malachi. And in the context of Malachi, the prophet is referring primarily not to Jacob and Esau as individuals, but to the two nations that have sprouted from each of these forefathers. You'll recall that, that while Rebekah was pregnant with the twins, that she noticed that the, the two children were in her womb struggling with one another. They seemed to be fighting there within her very womb. And she asked the Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord said, well, it's because two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The nations then are Israel and Edom, with Israel descending from Jacob and Edom descending from Esau. Edom, by the way, means red. And he is so named because when he came out, he was red and hairy. It seems to be kind of a nickname. Edom, he's red. The fact that Rebekah was told that the two boys represented two nations and that the passage in Malachi clearly refers to Israel and Edom as nations, has caused some scholars to deny that Paul is even talking about the election of individuals to salvation in this passage. They argue that Paul must be talking about corporate election and not individual election. And then they conclude that if it is corporate election and not individual election being discussed in Romans 9, then God must not be choosing these groups for salvation, but instead for some sort of service or 
temporal blessing. But does that make sense of the passage? Does that answer the question that Paul is trying to ask or prove the thesis that he is trying to defend? No, it doesn't. Paul would certainly not deny that Israel as a nation was elected by God for temporal blessings. That's essentially what he said back in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter when he stated several of those blessings, the adoption, the covenant, the giving of the law, and so forth. It's what he meant when he said they are Israelites. But the issue that he is dealing with is not why hasn't Israel received her corporate election and temporal blessings. She has. The issue is why have so many individual Israelites who benefited from this election and its blessings not also received salvation? It's clear in our passage that Paul is talking about salvation. Notice the vocabulary that Paul is using here. He not only talks about election, which, the context of the New, which in the context of the New Testament overwhelmingly refers to salvation, but he also uses the languages of calling, and the, he uses the phrase not of works, which throughout Romans and the Bible are talking about salvation. Paul's overwhelming sorrow and unceasing anguish that he mentions back in verses 2 through 3. The unceasing anguish that he has in his heart for his fellow Jews, his kinsmen after the flesh, is not because they haven't received corporate election or earthly blessings. He feels that way, that way about his kindred because they stand accursed and cut off from Christ because they're lost. He longs for their personal and individual salvation. That's what's being discussed here. Not only is it clear in our passage that Paul is talking about salvation, it's also clear that Paul is referring to Jacob and Esau as individuals and not as nations. And that's the way that Paul uses Malachi 1, 2, 2 and 3. He is looking at the present devastation of... Malachi is looking at the present devastation of Edom and hearkening back to God's sovereign election of Jacob over Esau. In that passage in Malachi, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The nations that have descended from these two started with God's choice between two brothers. So Malachi and also Paul are looking back and saying, Surely the Lord set His merciful love on Jacob, but did not choose uh, Esau. The truth of what was told Rebekah back in that day was demonstrated in the way the nations played out between Jacob or Israel and Edom. There's been a lot written about the meaning of this verse. I remember as young seminary students that we approached one of our esteemed professors, an Old Testament professor. We caught him in the hall. We, we, were, we were troubled by this passage. And this is the kind of guy that, you know, reads his devotions in Hebrew. So we asked him, we said, in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where it says, 
Jacob I have I loved, but Esau. And we didn't even get the whole question out of our mouths before he answered. It means hate. It means hate. So he says, uh, so some then in trying to tone down the force of that statement argue that it simply means that God loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. And there may be some truth to that. For instance, when Jesus tells us in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that certainly means that we must love God more than we love our family, right? That if it calls, if it comes to a choice between loving God or our family, obeying God or sticking with our family, that we choose God, right, and reject our family. But let's go back to Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2 to see how that idea of loving less fits with the rest. It says, Jacob have I loved them, but Esau I have loved less. And then it goes on to say, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. How does that suit you? How does that sound? What's clear, I think we can all agree, is that God felt differently about one than he did the other. God favored one over the other, but not because of anything about either one of them. So then I think it's best then to equate the love of God in this case with God's election of Jacob and the hatred God has toward Esau as his rejection of him. If God loves you, he gives himself. If he, with, if he gives you everything but withholds himself from you, then it is like he has hated you. And if you have nothing in this world but you have him, then you have everything and he has loved you. Therefore, I would argue that the words love and hate in this passage refer more to God's actions towards each of these two than His emotional feelings about them. Regardless, the doctrine of God's sovereign and unconditional election is clearly taught in this passage and it is undeniable. In order to back up Paul's claims, he quotes more Scripture that teaches us the same thing. And so if we reject this doctrine of election and this understanding, I think we'll find we're not arguing with me or with the church, but you'll find that you're arguing with God and with Scripture. And let me tell you from personal experience, at first when I came to this truth, I did not like it. It messed with what I had always been taught about God. And I continued to read the Bible and I began to think, you know, I may not like it, but that's what the Bible teaches. And over time, it became clear to me why this doctrine was so very important and why I now cherish this doctrine so very much. Not because I don't weep over Esau's, but because I realized that I could have been Esau. Yet for God's grace... I remember picking up some Sunday school curriculum one time. One that was written by a professor that I knew. And the curriculum was walking through a study of Romans as Sunday school literatures are wont to do. They failed to quote the whole verse. 
in this Sunday school quarterly, it had in Romans 9, Jacob have I loved dot dot dot. And it didn't quote the rest of it. And the heading over the top, the top of that section of the scripture uh, that they were studying was the universal love of God. Now listen, I can get behind the universal love of God and love of God and I think that the scriptures teach the universal love of God I believe in common grace that God loves the just and the unjust and he gives blessings to all but you can't get that from this passage and for him to not mention the whole verse just because he doesn't like what it says was dishonest and irresponsible as a teacher of the Bible We must not twist Scripture to fit what we want to hear. But we find in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 that I've already read, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God has chosen us and has set His affection upon us. He has called us into His family as sons. If you have kids, then it is only right that you feel differently about them than you do other people. That you love them more than you love others. God also loves His children in a different and special way than He loves others. That's the way it should be. It's only right. God shows special love to those who are His children. His love that He bestowed upon us from before the foundation of the world. And it is a love that is demonstrated for us in such a way that while we were yet sinners, Christ has died for us. Believe upon the Lord and you shall be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.